You're listening to another life-transforming message from C3 Church San Diego. For more information on our church, go to c3sandiego.com. So come with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 17. I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Parasites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is God talking to Moses. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. So this is before God led them out of Egypt. And Moses said that I can't speak. But my brother, he's a really, really good speaker. So God said, fine, take your brother, I'll, 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 let, I'll, let you, I'll speak to you, you speak to him, and then he'll speak to the people. Fine. I'm calling you to this, but if you want to do it that way, if you want to settle, go ahead. So then he, he delivered them from slavery in Egypt, brought plagues, split the Red Sea, and brought them out into the desert. And in the desert, for the first two years, his presence would be in a cloud that was over their camp, and their camp's like a couple of million people. So God would hover over their camp during the day. The cloud would settle down somewhere, the camp would move, and then at night, he would light the camp with a pillar of fire in the middle of the camp. Then after a while, the cloud would move and the camp would move. And then the cloud would stay and the camp would stay. And then the cloud would move and the people would move. And then God would move and the people would move. And then God would stay and the people would stay. And then God would move and the people would move. And it was this beautiful dance. And for two years, they danced together in the desert. And the number two in the Bible speaks of separation. And God needed to separate the people, teach them how to dance with them, before he could deliver them into the promise that he gave them. So the title of my message tonight is Dance in the Desert. The problem was, is he taught them how to dance, and then he said to his servant Moses in Numbers 13, God spoke to Moses and said, send men to scout out the country of Canaan that I'm going to give the people of Israel. Send one man from each ancestral tribe, one tried and true leader in the tribe. Send your biggest influencers in the tribe. So Moses sent them off from the wilderness of Paran to the command of God. All of them were leaders in Israel, one from each tribe. And so I'm not going to read through all the names, but if you can skip forward to the slide that just has the names, I'm going to show you what Moses picked. And this group of guys was a 
perfect list of attributes because all of their names spoke to their identities. And if you look at the identities of the people that, got, that Moses picked, the biggest influencers in the tribe, this is the, ty- this is the type of group that you would want to take territory, right? You've got six guys. You've got six guys that have attributes of man. You've got Shemua, which means to hear, Shaphat, to decide or to judge, Sethur, that is covering and protection, Nabhi, which is hidden because you know that sometimes it's not good to be out in the open. You need to hold back a little bit before you can strike. You've got Gadi, who is my fortune, and Caleb, who means dog. But you think about dogs, and dogs are faithful. The dogs are tenacious. The gods go, dogs go after it. They're always by your side. They bark, and they're, they're it, you, you want, you know, like, what's up, dog? I got my dog. You know, there's like, you want your dog with you, right? And then you've got six guys that are all attributes of God because six in the Bible represents man. It's the incompleteness of man. And so God, Moses chose six that had attributes of man, but then God said, I'm going to send 12. And in your incompleteness, I'll complete you with six more that have attributes of God. And the number 12 represents government. And so you've got this influential group of people, the biggest influencers in all of the tribes, and they were the ones that were selected to take the land. And in the, uh, at the, the end of that list in the Bible, it says, Moses gave Hosea, which means salvation, son of Nun, a new name, Joshua, which means God saves. And so you look at, look at what God did in Joshua. He evened out the numbers uh, of, of six and six, but by giving Joshua a revelation that he wasn't the one that was going to bring salvation, that God was going, going to be the one that brought the people into the promised land through him, that it's a dance, that the dance requires two participants, though. There's the power of God that moves, but then we move with him. And to move with God, I've got to know who I am in God. I've got to understand what my identity is. And as a Christian, the only identity that you ever need to identify with is I am a child of God. The world will put a lot of identity on people and they will label things as identity. Our language is probably our biggest barrier because we have an identity-based language. I was born in France. Some people are probably from Mexico and speak Spanish, and in Romance languages, you don't say, I am hungry. You don't say, I am tired. You don't say, I am thirsty. You say, I have fatigue. I have hunger and I have thirst. Because if you have something, you can also not have something. If I have thirst, I just need a glass of water and I don't have thirst anymore. I am not thirst, that's not my identity. 
if I have hunger, I just need a sandwich. I just need something to eat, right? Like, I just need something, and I'm not hungry anymore. But our, our culture has taught us that our behavior and our feelings are identity. So if you feel some, some way, or if you behave some way, that somehow identifies you. But don't you know, like, behavior can actually be changed. Before I got saved, I had a lot of not-so-godly behavior. I had a ton of addictions. As a, as a teenager, I was addicted to drugs. I was addicted to alcohol. Before that, I was addicted to pornography, and that lasted well into after I got saved. I also had an eating disorder. I was neurotic. I had a lot of compulsive behavior. In my early 20s, I dated a girl that was a sociopath, and my heart was so broken that I thought it would be easier to be gay than it would be to continue in brokenness, to continue in putting my heart in a place where it could be broken over and over and over again. This girl and I dated off and on for eight years. It was a complete disaster. There was so much manipulation. There was so much hurt. And I just, I kept believing that it was somehow my fault. And I was just like, I'm going to opt out. I'm going to put myself in a place on my own power where I can protect my heart from being hurt again. I'm just going to shut it down so I don't get hurt. And in my pain, I made a choice that I thought it would be easier to get physical release with a man than it would be to get emotional connection or risk emotional connection with a woman. And I got caught up in that. And I don't want to come from a place of, but I, I want to tell you that there's a, something about our language that needs to change when we're talking about identity. Because when you say, I am something, rather than I have something, it's not a freedom, it's a chain to an anchor. Because when it's your identity, when it's who you are, it's something that cannot be changed. I've been suicidally depressed. I was suicidally depressed as a teenager. I, I struggled with a lot of mental things that would be classified as mental illness. I had a lot of things. I'm grateful I was never taught to identify as being mentally ill, to chain myself to that anchor. Because I've also seen from my own eyes, in my own experience, and also through my eyes in the experience of so many others, people actually get free from mental illness. People that were schizophrenic, people that were delusional and hearing voices, people that were, were stuck in an identifiable category and identified with those things for years, and the power of Christ came on them. They were radically transformed, but it wasn't just a prayer. There was also a process, and I want to tell you that sometimes it's not just a prayer, and there's some of you that have probably gotten prayer for things that you've identified with, and God hasn't broken that in an instance, and so you've been discouraged, but I got to tell you that it's not just a prayer sometimes. Sometimes it's a process. Sometimes it's not just this. It's also 
this. Because you know, Christ gave us his body that we would be saved. But he also gave us, he gave us, he, he, he t- turned his back, he took the lashings, he gave his body so that we would be healed. But he also gave us his body, the church, that's all of you, so that we would be healed. And most of my most deepest hurts happen through people. And most of my deepest healings have also happened through people. Sometimes it's not just a prayer, but it's also a person. So what happened with these spies? They went out and they came back. And they said, we went to the land which you sent us, and oh, does it flow with milk and honey. And just look at this fruit. The only thing is, the only thing is that the people who live there are fierce, and their cities are huge, and they're well fortified, and worse yet, we saw descendants of the giant Anak. Amalekites are spread throughout Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and Amorites hold the hill country, and the Canaanites are established on the Mediterranean Sea along the Jordan. Caleb barked. (laughs) He interrupted. He called for silence before Moses, and he said, let's go up and take the land now. We can do it. But the other said, we can't attack those people. They're way stronger than we are. They spread scary rumors among the people of Israel. They said, we scouted out the land from one end to the other. It's a land that swallows people whole. Everyone we saw was huge. Why, even the Nephilim giants, the Anak giants come from the Nephilim. Along them, we felt like grasshoppers. And they looked down on us as if we were grasshoppers. The whole community was in an uproar, wailing all night long. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The entire community was in on it. Why didn't we just die in Egypt or in this wilderness? Why has God brought us to this country to kill us? Our wives and children are about to become plunder. Why don't we just head back into slavery? Why don't we just head back to what was comfortable? Why don't we just head back to what we know? Why don't we just go back and settle for a life in bondage? Why don't we just, instead of saying that we're victors, why don't we just say that we're slaves? Why don't we just go back to Egypt right now? So Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in front of the entire community gathered in an emergency session. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, members of the scouting party, ripped their clothes and addressed the assembled people of Israel said, the land we walked through and scouted out is a very, very good land. God is pleased with us. If he's pleased with us, he'll lead us into that land. He'll lead us. He moves. We follow. A land that flows, as they say, with milk and honey, and he'll give it to us. Just don't rebel against God, and don't be afraid of those people. We'll have them for lunch. They have no protection, and God is on our side. Don't be afraid of them. So it happened, uh, skip forward to verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 36. So it happened that the men Moses sent out to scout the land returned to circulate false rumors about the land 
causing the entire community to grumble against Moses. Have you ever had people in church sped, spread false rumors about leadership so they grumble against leadership? All of those men died. <laughs> Having spread false rumors of the land. <laughs> hey, hey, it's in the Bible, okay? It's in the Bible. <laughs> All of those men died. But don't you know you can die spiritually? You start to look at where leadership is failing or where you think from your vantage point leadership is failing. You start to discredit the leadership and then you start to move yourself out of church because and take people with you in your grumbling and complaining. And then you find this group of people have all died spiritually, have gone back into bondage. I mean, it's in the Bible. So anyway... All of these men died having sped for all to rumors of the land. They died in a plague confronted by God. Only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, were left alive among the men who went to scout out the land. But when Moses told all of this to the people of Israel, they mourned long and hard. But early the next morning, they started out for the hill country, saying, Oh, we're here and we're ready. Let's go up and attack the land that God promised us. We've sinned, but now we're ready. You ever met anybody like that? confronted about their sin, and then all of a sudden they're ready to do a right about face. It's not a change of heart. They just got caught. So they wanted to keep on going. They were like, okay, yeah, well, I'm going to keep on going. So Moses said, why are you crossing God's command yet again? This won't work. Don't attack. God isn't with you in this. You'll be beaten badly by your enemies. The Amalekites and the Canaanites are ready for you, and they'll kill you. Because you've left off obediently following God, God is not going to be with you in this. So what happened is they ended up getting beaten back really badly. And they stayed in the desert for 40 years. And God said none of the generation that he had taught to dance with him, but had listened to the influencers, none of that generation got to step into the land, except for the two guys that already had the promise in their heart. And if you skip forward all the way into Joshua, when Caleb, the dog, is given Hebron. He said that he had the promise in his heart. And you know, when we are delivered out of something, it's a lot different than being delivered into the promise. When we're delivered out of bondage, in between bondage and the promise, there's usually a desert. Because before God can trust you with the promise, he needs to know that you know how to dance with him. That he moves, you move. He stays, you stay. It's not about taking your own idea about how to get the promise and departing from God to try to do it on your own. So all of the people that he intended to bring into the promise, an entire generation of people that he wanted to bring in, not 42 years later, he wanted to bring them in 
two years later. The reason that the Israelites were in the desert for 42 years wasn't because they were lost. They knew exactly where the promised land was the entire time. The first two years were about learning to dance. The second 40 years were letting that entire generation that had listened to influencers that didn't know their identity, the entire generation that had listened to a bunch of influential men that had forgotten who God said they were, that that 40 years was getting that generation to die so that their children could inherit what God promised. And you skip forward a little bit further. You know, the, the thing with identity is, you know, the, the world says that our behavior is what we should identify with. That our, our behavior is our identity. But when we know our identity, and this is what the church teaches, this is, this is why the church is so different from the world, because the church was never meant to lower itself to the world, to allow for an identity that God never intended to be something that we wear as a badge. And I'm not telling you that it doesn't feel good to find a bunch of people that you know have the same dysfunction as you do. You can find community there, but it's never going to be the community that God intended for you to be in, because it's not a community of freedom, it's a community of bondage. You're meant to find your identity in God, and when you find your identity as a child of God, it will transform your behavior. You don't identify with your behavior, identify with your dysfunction, and expect to somehow find your identity there. You identify with God and who he says you are as his child, and it will transform your behavior so you can walk into your promise. But it's a dance of he moves, I move, and sometimes it's a process to get to that that promise. When you complain, whether it's complaining about leadership or complaining about your situation, when you're in the desert and you complain, you abdicate responsibility. And if you're praying to God for something that you can do, it is the same as complaining. I'll say that again so you hear it. If you are praying to something, for something, for, you're asking God to do something that you can do. It's the same as complaining. It's abdicating your authority. And you can play so small doing that. So Moses' brother Aaron died. God told Moses and Aaron that they were going to die on this side of the Jordan. They had failed to lead properly. Moses had abdicated his responsibility by settling to let his brother speak rather than letting God be in his mouth as he spoke to the people. And Aaron had to die first, and it's a really interesting picture because if you get, you get a little bit forward in uh, 
So it, they're, okay, yeah, so you, when you complain, you lose your authority, and it's, uh, but you get a little bit forward in, in the verses, and the Canaanite king Arad, ruling in Negev, heard Israel was advancing up the road uh, to Atharim. He attacked Israel and took prisoners of war. And this was something that happened in the desert. The Israelites complained again and again and again, and there were all of these plagues that came, and he was wiping out that first generation plague by plague. Then Aaron died. And Moses and Aaron had been falling on their face. They'd been intercessors for the Israelites. They'd been falling on, the fa- on their face, but the people never com- repented. They just complained. And then Aaron died. And they had a battle where a bunch of people were taken prisoners, and Israel vowed to God. And this is the first time that they said something to God that they were willing to do. They said, if you give us this people into our power, we will destroy their towns and present the ruins to you as a holy destruction. He was starting to get the promise into them. You know, when, you're, when he delivered them out, it's, it's just like natural birth and rebirth. When you're delivered out of your mother, you're born from the inside out. But when you're reborn, God comes from the outside to take up residence in you. And it's exactly what happened with the nation of Israel. They were delivered out of Egypt, but they didn't get delivered into their promise until God came from the outside and got their promise into them. And this is the first picture of them starting to accept their promise. And you understand that the promise also has a process associated with it, and they were willing to go to war because they believed that God was with them. God, you move, we'll follow. If you deliver these people to us, we're going to let this be a monument to what you've done. God, we're starting to, to get it. And so that's exactly what happened. God listened to Israel's prayer and gave them the Canaanites. They destroyed both them and their town, a holy destruction. And they named the place Hormah which means holy destruction. They set out from Mount Hor along the Red Sea Road, a detour around the land of Eden, and the people became irritable and cross as they traveled again. They spoke out against God and just Moses this time because Aaron was dead. Why did you drag us out of Egypt to die in this God-forsaken country? No decent food, no water. We can't stomach this stuff any longer. So God sent another plague, poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit their heels. And many of Israel died. And the people came to Moses, and they said, we sinned when we spoke out against God and you. Pray to God and ask him to take these snakes from us. In other translations, it says the people repented. And this is the first time in the whole time that they were in the desert that the people repented. And watch this. God said to Moses, make a snake, put it on a flagpole. Whoever is bitten and looks at the snake will live. They'll be saved. So Moses made a snake out of fiery copper and put it on a flag or on on bronze and put it on top of a flagpole. And anyone bitten by a snake who looked at the bronze snake lived. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And the snake represents sin. And it's, it's the beautiful picture of redemption in Christ. That he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. So that when we looked on him, we would become the righteousness of God. And I know there's some of you here that have looked on Christ as a lamb or as a lion, as a savior, as a son. But how many of you have looked on Christ as your sin? Not sin in general, but have you seen, you look at the cross and instead of seeing a body hanging there that represents a man or represents God or represents something else, you see that body hanging there, you see the cross as representing your sin. That God took on the stain so that you could be white as snow. We sung it today that because of Jesus, my heart is clean. And I don't think we really understand the fullness of our salvation until we see that Christ actually became our sin. The object of God's affection became the object of God's wrath that he stood in our place so that we would be washed clean, so that we would be seen as saints, not saved sinners. We're not identified by our sin. We're identified by our Savior. And if you, focus on, if you focus on the serpent, if you focus on what was given, you will always be grateful. If you focus on what was taken, you'll always be a victim and you dishonor the gift and yourself. So Psalm 107 says, let the re redeemed of the Lord say so. And the mark of the redeemed is that we can actually say so. I know a lot of people in church that hide their redemption in the closet. That they had a past, just like I had a past, that was filled with a lot of dysfunction, and now they show up to church on Sunday with their beautiful family, their gorgeous kids, and this incredible grace-filled redemption is left hiding in their closet. And they show up to church for themselves so that they can have an experience with God instead of truly becoming the church and wearing their redemption on their sleeve because it no longer has any power over them. There is no identity left in their dysfunction that they've actually been washed clean. And so it said, let the redeem say so. If you can't say so, if you can't freely talk about exactly how God redeemed you, not general things of I was such a sinner and then I got redeemed, but if you can't say so, shame has got your tongue and you are still in the desert. You have not crossed over into the promised land. Revelation 12, 11 says that the accuser was overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the spoken word of their testimony. 
it doesn't say the accuser was overcome by the blood of the lamb and excellent exegetical teaching. It doesn't say that the accuser was overcome by the blood of the lamb and great theology, perfect hermeneutics. The blood of the lamb was overcome or the, the accuser was overcome by the blood of the lamb a move of God, God's sacrifice, and by the spoken word of our testimonies. He moves, we move. His sacrifice, our sacrifice. And they didn't live, love their lives. They didn't care how they were seen because they knew they were redeemed, truly redeemed. I've thought that my past disqualified me from ever standing before a group of saints and saying so. But what I've seen, what I actually got redeemed, and not just when I got delivered out of my Egypt, out of my dysfunction, but when I got delivered into my promise, when I was willing to go into the desert with God and learn how to dance. I turned down a job. I was being groomed to be the global creative director of Hewlett Packard. It was a big deal position. And I got called into a full-time ministry discipleship school, a, a missionary equipping school with a bunch of sold out lifelong Christians. I was like a left of the left of the left of the left and to say that I was a slut before I got saved would be a gross understatement. I didn't belong in church school by the world's definition of what that looks like, but God called me there and taught me how to dance with him. And all of that dysfunction, all of that dysfunction became something that didn't steal a platform, but actually gave me a platform. But I'll tell you that it wasn't just being delivered out and learning how to dance. I still had to be delivered into my promise. And it wasn't until God brought me to C3 on my second date with my promise, my wife, my beautiful Jenny who's sitting in the front row, that that started to really get worked out, where there started to be, you know, delivered from gives you a test. It's not until you're delivered to that you have a testimony. And some people think that their only testimony is being delivered out of. There were two and a half tribes that settled on the wrong side of the Jordan because they saw that it was good farmland, and God said, fine, stay there, you can have it, but the rest of you all, I'm going to bring you into the fullness of my promise. And there's some of you that have been stuck in the desert for a long time. I was in the desert for a long time. But when he moved, he moved 
quickly. I met Jenny, we dated for five months, we got engaged. Five months later, we were married, and I actually started to step into, while I was dancing with God in my desert, I started to step into that inconvenient truth that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. I started to live as if the Bible were true, living up to its standards rather than my own, whether it made sense to my mind or not. And what happened when I got delivered out of the desert into my promise, there was the relationship was easy because that hard work was done with God in the desert. And I could step into this relationship and do it right. The idea of not sleeping with my girlfriend before I got married, that was crazy talk. If, if something wasn't happening by like the third or fourth date, there might not be a fifth. But we did everything right, and God blessed it. And coming together in a union that has been blessed by God could not be more different than what I had done before. But within a month of getting married, we were pregnant with my daughter. 20 months after my daughter was born, my son was born. There has been more increase in my life in every area of life. When I started to move with God, he moves eye moves, just dancing with them, such a beautiful thing to do that I got delivered into my promised land. But I got to tell you that the promised land, even when Israel was delivered into the promised land, they didn't get perfection. You don't get delivered in, into perfection until you die. We get delivered into process after process while we're here. And you should know that being delivered into marriage is not being delivered into two perfect people that have been sitting in church for a little while and suddenly that blessing of God comes on them and there's no more baggage that ever needs to be looked at again. Being delivered into marriage is two people with a lifetime of baggage being brought into a union, a three-stranded cord where God's at the center where we spend a lifetime of unpacking our baggage together through the power of God. Where that unpacking doesn't pull us farther apart, but it's actually pulled us closer together time and time and time again. It's a beautiful dance if you'll let God take the lead. This, uh, this past week, I, uh, I released a book, and I'm gonna, I, I gotta tell you that it was, it, it was an act of obedience that I didn't want to do on God's power. I wanted to do it on mine. And two and a half years ago, I got a prophecy from Tim Hall. He interrupted my walk down the street and called me out. He had been preaching here the night before, and the night before, I had actually been preaching at Central Campus. And before I preached that message, I prayed to God, where do you want me to go with this? I could do the easy lob of I was a teenage drug addict and you delivered me from that, and it would be powerful because it is powerful. But I don't know what's safe for church. And the word that I got back from him was, if you censor what I've done in your life, you will censor what I can do and what I want to do through your life. So I was like, oh. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. 
but I can't say what the enemy intended for evil, God will use for good unless I'm willing to actually let him use it for good. So I was obedient and Tim Hall was up here. I was down at Central at the five and the next day I passed to Starbucks and Lucas Connell who was sitting with him but not looking in my direction was looking away from him. Tim Hall had asked Lucas to get my attention because he saw me walking and he had a word from God for me. And he introduced himself and said that he was a prophet that he had huge revival events all over the country, and if I didn't believe him, I could ask my friend Lucas or I could look him up on the internet. And he said he didn't usually just pull people off of the street to give them random words and tell them that God had been speaking to him about them. But this was so profound that he needed to interrupt my day and make himself look awkward to tell me that I had this incredible multifaceted story that needed to be told in a book, and that I was to write it and that God would be with me. And then I was to write a book for every one of those facets, but I needed to write this one book that contained all the facets first. And I thought, well, for sure, you know, he was up at North last night, he probably talked to my friend Matt about me, and you know, that was, that's where my mind went initially. Because you know, that didn't happen. He had literally just saw me and got a word, of God, word from God for me. And then the next morning, Sam Duth called me, and had almost word for word the same word. And I listened to Sam and then I said, God, that's so weird, did you talk to Tim Hall? And he said, the guy from Planet Shakers, no. I said, wow, that's really weird because yesterday he told me the same thing and Sam said, well, the, the tone of the conversation got very, very different. And it got really, really serious and Sam said, hey, I have a prophetic gift. Tim has a very famous prophetic gift, and this is very serious. This is something that you can't be disobedient about. This is a call of God on your life, and you cannot be disobedient. This is something you have to do. So I went to myself, and in my natural mind, I outlined, I designed a cover, and I thought that that would inspire me, and it didn't. And for a year, for a year, I didn't do anything. But we pledged a huge amount to Vision Builders, and my, my income got cut in half. And so the next year, a week, two weeks before Vision Builders, I, I had, had done a seven-day fast around our Vision Builders pledge because I was confused. I'm like, why, why would you give both my wife and I a number that we were both uncomfortable with, confirm it in both of our mouths, and then not give us provision to make this happen? And he said, I have give you, given you provision. You've just been disobedient. I'm like, isn't my strength supposed to rise as I wait on you? And he said, yeah, wait on, not wait for. That's, you know, to wait on means to serve. That's why servers are called waiters in restaurants. They just don't stand around waiting for their tables. They serve them. And God said, I've given you a way to serve me and you've been disobedient. I didn't tell you to design a cover. I didn't tell you to outline. I told you to write. Write, and I'll be with you. I started writing that night, 30 pages, boom. Next night, 25 pages, boom. And it was like, boom, 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 boom. It was not the book that I wanted to write. It was the book that he wanted to write. I was uncomfortable about it, but it just flowed. And then I show up at the Vision Builders dinner, and beautiful Kelly Hillard comes up to me, and she's like, I feel like I've been disobedient. You've been on my vision card since the beginning of the year. I know you have a book in you. I help people get their books published. I wanna help you. I have editors. I have everything you need to get a book published. And I'm like, God, that's so weird. 
this just happened the past week. And so it's been this, this, he moves, I move. And finally the book got done this week. And I have it here. So I'll sign copies afterwards. But I've already heard through people that me being obedient. I signed 300 books at the Cherish Conference. And there was story after story after story about how my obedience, not just at the conference, but in messages that I preached at church, had set people free. And there were stories of sons, daughters, mothers, fathers, best friends. On my vision card for the past five years, the five people that I've wanted to have have a salvation experience have been my parents and my brother. And I didn't realize that me not sharing my testimony, my full testimony, not the cheap church safe, I was a mess and God redeemed me testimony, but like this is the mess and this is the process testimony that that was actually holding back the vision that I had. That some of you know you have a testimony that needs to be shared and you have kept it bottled up, you have hidden it in a closet and God has told you time and time again. And you've had opportunities, you've had conversations where you know I need to say this but you've been disobedient. I wanna tell you that a lot of other people's promised land is on the other side of your willingness to share your testimony. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our pastors, team, and what we do at C3 San Diego, go to c3sandiego.com.